It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Blog Talk Radio. Some of the images and sounds you are about to see and hear are graphic in nature. Viewer discretion is advised. Flight 11 crashed into the North Tower of the World Trade Center at 8.46 a.m. on September 11, 2001. About 6,000 people were in the building. Unaware of what had happened, they used their phones to get information from the outside world and to make contact with loved ones. I want to say how much I love you. I'm okay. I'm safe now, but smoky. The calls came from survivors. And they came from some of the 3,000 who never came home. Some of these calls were recorded, and some are etched in the memories of those left behind. These calls and these radio transmissions, they show us through sound, what we couldn't see with our eyes. The deluge started almost immediately. There were 3,000 calls to 9-11 from the emergency dispatchers in the first 10 minutes. And the calls kept coming in. We have numerous, numerous people trapped. The plane hit from the 93rd to the 99th floor, and it destroyed the stairwells in the 92nd floor. Yes, I had a call for the World Ladies and gentlemen of America, tonight, AJC Radio remembers 9-11, one of the most horrific actions taken against this country in its history. Tonight, we look back remembering the voices, the victims, and the survivors of a tragedy that shook a nation. This is AJC Radio, 9-11, we'll never forget. We take off right now.
And there you have it. I'm Lamont Banks along with Cliff Stewart and Sampson Riddle along with the AJC radio team. Tonight we are honored yet saddened as we look back at one of the most tragic moments uh, in our history as far as terrorist attacks on this country. I'll tell you right now, folks, you want to pull up a chair, you want to sit down and listen to this as we, in honor of the heroes, as well as in remembrance of the victims and those that have died. Some heroes died actually in the building trying to save others. And it was one of, one of the most horrific, again, actions brought against this nation. Samson, as we look back 17 years, I believe, ago, uh, we don't forget. Uh, absolutely not. I mean, this is one day, you know, just like uh, Pearl Harbor Day, this is one day that's going to live in infamy in our uh, in our nation. This is the this is the time, only the second time in our nation's history when, you know, foreigners came in, you know, combat from a combatant country and dared to attack us on American soil. And it cost us thousands upon thousands of lives instantly. In that day, and it sparked a nation to go to war, to defend itself, and, and galvanize us as a people to go and act out against those that would do our nation harm. No, absolutely right, Cliff. And uh, uh, there's been some, a lot of things that have happened. A lot of families, you know, I, I, you, never, you just never forget something that, that really impacts a nation on that level. Uh, I remember, and we'll ask questions tonight, of what people were doing at the time. Uh, when this tragedy struck America, uh, many were at work, many were driving, and all of a sudden, you're thinking, oh, there's an explosion in a building. You know, that, that's all you think until it escalated to its highest point of tragedy and horror. Uh, and once you knew what had happened, uh, it was definitely something that would shake you. Uh, and I'll tell you what, this nation was scrambling, find, trying to find answers as the death toll continued to rise. And, uh, Cliff, your thoughts on, on the importance of remembering and reflecting back? Yeah, I mean, when you think about it, um, I don't think that anyone that, you know, over the age of probably 13, 14, does not remember where they were at, what they were doing, uh, you know, at the time of the attacks on 9-11. Uh, looking at it, everybody thought, oh, there's a, a plane uh, you know, must have flown off course and crashed into one of the towers until we really started to understand what was going on. And it uh, left an indelible mark in every American's mind and, you know, around the world that um, that we had a terror attack on American soil. Not, you know, we had had attacks before that, uh, you know, were claims. They had tried to, uh, you know, to crash a, a car bomb into the Trade Center and things of that nature, but nothing on that scale. Uh, it just makes you look back and and um, understand that we have to always be vigilant. And for those who were lost, uh, for our first responders that are, um, you know, going through some of their health issues due to, you know, the, the ash clouds there when the buildings came down, we have to remember them, appreciate them, and, uh, and you know, always honor them for sacrificing their life and uh, their families and you know, being the heroes that they are to go in, um, you know, you might say that, well, they did their job, they're first responders, they're firemen, that's what they're supposed to do. But in the in the face of danger, in the face of buildings crashing down, they still ran toward it and, uh, you know, to save other lives. And without them, the casualties would have been many more. We have to uh, tip our hats to them 
uh, bow a knee in appreciation and uh, thank God that uh, they were there to, to do what they had to do. No, absolutely right. We're going to be joined here uh, tonight. Two guests are joining us. Paul Salino will be joining us at the top of the hour, 7 o'clock uh, Mountain Time. He'll be joining us. Uh, apparently had some folks he knew in the tower uh, the day that it began to tumble. Uh, he's been a guest on this show. Uh, we welcome his perspective and what he has to bring to this conversation. Uh, joining us here at 6.30, about at the bottom of the hour, uh, we're going to be joined by Terry Strata. Uh, she is a 9-11 widow, uh, and she has become, as a result of that tragedy, a special interest advocate and national chair for 9-11 Families and Survivors, United, United for Justice Against Terrorism, the Families. In this role, Terry serves as a liaison between 9-11 Families and Survivors in the United States Congress. Uh, and from her home in New Jersey, Terry travels to Washington, D.C. to meet with senators and representatives. So we're looking very forward to hear from her. Someone who actually uh, lost uh, her husband uh, in the in in those attacks and has become a voice uh, for her husband and and the things that could have helped avoid uh, 9/11 and others as well. We're going to be chiming in on the RP5 uh, tonight, who actually uh, was in the works of completing and did complete uh, information that would help. Uh, intelligence agencies, law enforcement agencies to track uh, terrorist groups, uh, things along those lines, and work diligently to get it done. Uh, we're going to talk about them and how what they sought out to do as they stood at the location of Ground Zero and were motivated uh, by the entrepreneur spirit to make a difference in the impact uh, a nation. And uh, that's the level that that software uh, remains at today. Uh, if not better. Uh, we're going to be talking about that a little bit later in this program. On the other side of the break, folks, we come back remembering 9-11, the victims, the day the towers fell. This is AJC Radio. We'll be right back. For a kid whose mom or dad is in prison, life is tough. Now add a wrongful conviction to that, Life just got a little bit tougher. Trying to explain to friends why mom or dad is not at the school play or at the ball game is something that no kid should ever be faced with. Especially if mom or dad is innocent. Ladies and gentlemen, get involved today to stop the epidemic of wrongful convictions. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call or just calls today. 1-855-529-4252. We seek justice for the children. As they go to bed at night and mom's not there, dad's not in the other room to make them feel safe. Not because dad or mom did anything wrong, because justice could not be found. Join us for the children, for they truly are our future. There's a lot of mud when it rains here, and it makes it really hard to find food. There are car bombs every day. My mom worries about me when I go out. Every time I hear the alarm bell go off in school, I think it's an air raid. 
Sometimes I have nightmares about it. A lot of houses in our neighborhood have been destroyed. I like to close my ears and sing songs whenever the bombs come close. My dad says we have to leave, which makes me scared. I'm worried our new neighbors won't like us. What if they don't understand our religion? Because we don't speak the language, it might be hard for them to make friends. But I know it's all going to be okay. It's all going to be worth it. I just want my family to be safe. But these are not my words. These are not my words. These are not my words. My dad, because he's my hero. When I was little, my dad was away a lot. But I was okay with that because he was doing this really important work, driving ambulances in Iraq. Now he's at home, which is great for me because I get to see him every day now. And he's still the biggest hero I know because he kills all the ambulances and the fire engines where to go and rescue people when there's an emergency. I'm so proud of him. He's awesome. He's my dad. If your service-connected disability prevents you from continuing in your civilian career, Voc Rehab offers counseling, training with a living allowance, education, and other services to help prepare you for your next mission. We have a big problem, and we need your help. It's happening on college campuses, at bars, at parties, even in high schools. It's happening to our sisters and our daughters our wives and our friends. It's called sexual assault and it has to stop. We have to stop it. So listen up. If she doesn't consent or if she can't consent, it's rape, it's assault. It's a crime. It's wrong. If I saw it happening, I was taught you have to do something about it. If I saw it happening, I speak up. If I saw it happening, I'd never blame her. I'd help her. Because I don't want to be a part of the problem. I want to be a part of the solution. We need all of you to be part of the solution. This is about respect. It's about responsibility. It's up to all of us to put an end to sexual assault. And that starts with you. Because one is too many. If you don't stop your friend from drinking and driving, you're as good as dead. Drinking and driving can kill a friendship. Ladies and gentlemen of America, tonight we look back at the tragedy of 9-11 to our heroes, to the victims, and to really the questions why something so tragic had to happen. My answer to you on that is that it didn't have to happen, and there are people that have to be in place to protect this nation. The RP 5 are those men that stood in a position uh, 
now going forward that to avoid any of these type of tragedies to happen again. And that effort, sadly to say, uh, has gone ignored. In order to bring about change to avoid tragedies of this magnitude, it takes people coming together, leaving the egos at the door, and doing what's best for, for our citizens uh, in this country. Uh, we're going to get into that conversation here shortly, but uh, 9-11 was a, was a tragic day. Um, I was working at an, an organization called American Teleconferencing at the time, uh, and in between conference calls that we actually managed for celebrities all over the country, uh, things got quiet. Uh, you had a lot of time sometimes in between conference calls to relax, chill out, do what you needed to do. And I remember looking up on the TV monitor in the game room, if you will, and I'm seeing this fire at, in this building. I'm not grasping yet because the volume isn't up uh, what exactly had happened. And people were just, oh, there's been a, a bomb or some sort, uh, but it was far greater. Uh, and then they, of course, let everybody go home. Uh, that day because it was it was that much of an impact uh, never forgot it never turned off the TV hardly uh, probably for quite some time after this happened and what we got to understand is there were a lot of people lost people lost parents uh, parents lost children uh, this was a big deal and uh, we honor all of the heroes the first responders uh, even those again that have uh, really given uh, their life uh, trying to save others. Right now, we're going to play a clip for you that speaks for itself. Listen to this one. You may need the clinics box on this one. Let's play it. It's been a year, Daddy. I really, really miss you. Mommy says you're safe now in a beautiful place called heaven. Oh, we We had your favorite dinner tonight. That was only you. And I ate it all up. Even though I don't like carrots. nothing to take you with me. I learned how to swim this summer. And I kept even open my eyes when I went to water. You make a man back more. Can you see me? I miss you, Daddy. Baby, you're all that I want. And you're lying here in my arms. Finding it hard to believe we're in heaven. Five years, Daddy. Love is all that I need. I'm in fifth grade now. I really like computers. But math is hard. Mommy lets me sleep in one of your t-shirts. I think it still smells like you. I don't need to sleep with the light on anymore. I'm trying not to cry, Daddy, but it's so hurt. I really miss you, Daddy. There's a lot that I can say. Just 
I started high school. I made the honor roll. I hope you're proud of me. I'm also on the soccer team. Can you see me on the field? I started thinking about college. Do you think I could be a doctor? I know you'll be with me when I walk down the aisle. I've been waiting for a while. I try not to be sad. But it hurts. I hope you know you're my hero. I love you so much. Now our dreams are coming it's been 15 years, Daddy. I'm finishing college. I got into med school. I really want to help people. You have always inspired me. I met a nice guy who was really special to me. I think you would really like him. We talk about our life together. Mom says he's a lot like you. I think about you every day. I'm still sad. But you make me strong. Can you see me? I miss you, Daddy. I really miss you, Daddy. I miss you, Daddy. I miss you, Daddy. There you have it. A young girl who lost her father. Heart-wrenching, to say the least. She's one of many that feels that type of pain. I don't know when grief stops or does it ever stop. When you lose somebody that close, your mom, your dad, your your family members. Um, Samson, your thoughts on this one? Yeah, I mean, when I, when I think about where I was, um, back when uh, the events of 9-11 occurred, um, you know, shortly out of high school, I was in a delayed entry program um, going into the military. Um, hadn't really made up my mind if I was going to go to college or not or just go directly into the service. And then, you know, um, I remember I was at a restaurant, I believe in Orlando, Florida, and it was just one of those surreal moments where it seemed like Everything just came to a halt. Um, nobody knew what was going on. And then um, just the events just kept getting replayed and getting replayed and getting replayed. And it's like, it seemed like generation after generation has gone by where, yes, there's been attacks on, um, as Cliff said, there's been attacks here on, on United States soil, but never to the extent and magnitude that we suffered that day. We're talking about over 3,000 people in an instant that were taken away. Families uh, were just ripped apart and lives were changed and a country was changed forever. 
and I, I just me personally I mean, it does strike a chord with me not that I, I knew anyone personally but I, I know many of the people that were affected many of the men and women that I served with were uh, from like uh, the the New England especially New York area and so they had family members loved ones that were either in the building or were part of the first responder crews that went out there and rushed up 110 floors doing everything they could to save those people's lives and I mean it just it's it's very sombering you know sombering and just it makes you you know reflect on the things in, that we have today and like we never want to take them for granted especially you know that clip we heard I mean if that doesn't hit you you know in the deepest part of your soul I, I mean I would almost begin to question someone's someone's humanity just to, to put yourself in the place of that little girl that grows up without their their father because he was either a first responder that rushed into the building or he was one of the victims of that of that day oh absolutely right and and uh it's important that we remember those folks uh people went to work that day as any other day uh, got about their business to take care uh you know of their families with going to work and providing and little did they know that such a such a tragedy was waiting um and to this day, I'll say this point blank, our prayers and thoughts go with the families 17 years later uh, to that little girl who will never uh, probably stop feeling that in the, in the, the absence of her father. Um, right now, we're going to play another clip, Remembering 9-11, A Timeline of Tragedies. It's around 8.45 a.m., a chilled morning in New York City partly clouds. In Boston, American Airlines Flight 11, bound for Los Angeles, has been hijacked. Then a news bulletin. An airplane flying due south has crashed into the upper level of the North Tower of the World Trade Center. 9.03 a.m. A surreal event unlike anything in the history of the broadcast media. Countless viewers are watching live when suddenly an airplane is seen flying in an easterly direction. The plane swings around the southern end of the second World Trade Tower and explodes on impact. 9.30 a.m. President Bush at an elementary school in Sarasota, Florida, goes on television live to announce the disaster. Terrorism against our nation will not stand. But even the president doesn't know just what is coming next. At 9.35 a.m., a third hijacked plane crashes into the Pentagon. There is no question now that the United States is under attack by terrorists. In Washington, the Pentagon, the Capitol, and the White House as well as other government buildings, are evacuated. And Manhattan Island, incredibly, is sealed off. All bridges and tunnels are closed. And then, 9.59 a.m., scene that will change New York for all time. The South Tower of the World Trade Center collapses. And just a half hour later, at 10.28, the North Tower goes down as well. New York's twin towers have disappeared. It has been less than two hours since the first attack in New York City. An unimaginable number of people are dead and injured. The southern end of New York City's famous skyline has vanished. Nothing will ever be the same again. In a street-side news conference near the terrible devastation of the World Trade Center, New York City Mayor Rudolph Giuliani said, I have a sense it's a horrendous number of lives lost. I don't know yet. Right now we have to focus on saving as many lives as possible.
Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen. Whew, this is a tough one tonight as we try to put our hands around our, our hands around the um, situation of the tragedy that happened. Um, right now, we're going to be joined by a lady that is to be respected and really honored for her work. I'm going to let her introduce herself. Her name is Terry Strata. Terry, are you with us? Yes, I am. I'm here. Thank you, Terry. We appreciate you joining us tonight, and uh, I can't tell you how uh, honored I am to have you on this show to share your story, uh, some of the things that you've been motivated to do as a result of this tragedy of 9-11. I want to leave it to you to introduce yourself and tell us the story of how you were impacted by 9-11, and then we'll get into discussion of what you're doing now uh, to make a change across this nation. And again, thank you for joining us tonight. Go ahead. All right. Well, thank you for having me and allowing me to have this opportunity to share with the public um, what it was like on September 11th for my family. It was a beautiful Tuesday morning here in the New York area, and Tom got up to go to work. I was staying home as we had just brought home our third child on Sunday. Uh, Justin was born on Friday. He was four days old. And my daughter, who was four years old, was going to wake up for her very first day of nursery school. And my oldest, Thomas, who was seven at the time, um, was actually sick that morning, and I had made the decision to keep him home from school. So Tom got up and went to work, and I stayed home with the kids. And he telephoned when he first got into the office to ask me how Thomas was feeling and to make sure that um, everything was okay with everyone at home. That's who Tom was. Um, We were always on his mind. We were always in his heart. And he called home several times a day on a regular day. And with a new baby and a sick one at home, he was going to be calling a lot. So the next time the phone rang, shortly after 8 o'clock, I think, or it was just within minutes of when, the plane had hit the building because I was standing in front of the television set in our bedroom. I had just taken my shower recently, and when the phone rang and I answered it, and he told me that a plane had hit the building, there was no image of it on the television, which I think was a blessing um, looking back at it because I could talk calmly to him while he was talking about how bad it was, and I could hear all the screams in the background, and I knew it was really something was horrible. And the smoke was bad, and they were going to be going to the stairwell and and try to make an exit. We said our I love yous, a few private words between the two of us. And I said, you know, just get out and come home. Um, As soon as I hung up the phone is when I saw the images on the TV that the rest of the world was witnessing at the same time. And I saw the smoke billowing out of the North Tower where he was, and I just screamed to my mother, who was there visiting or helping me with the kids, and told her, he can't get out of that. Nobody can get out of that. Look how bad that is. And I just remember being so afraid, so afraid for him. Um, And as we all know how the day progressed, it just went from bad to, to awful to worse to devastating when 
the second tower was hit, I was standing in front of the television and couldn't believe what I was seeing, that deliberate airplane coming into the South Tower, where I also had friends. You know, Tom had worked on Wall Street his entire career, um, and we had friends in both buildings and various companies. Um, and I was terrified for everyone and the, and the people on the planes. How could you not, your heart not be breaking for them also? Um, so as it went on and the South Tower was the first one to fall, it never entered my mind and my psyche. I suppose what we were just saw was so unbelievably impossible to witness that it never entered my mind it would happen again and that it would happen to the North Tower until, of course, it did. And I just remember the screaming, um, knowing he was in there, knowing at that moment he was gone. And, and sir, you said you guys had last words. Uh, he, right. made an att- he made an attempt to get out down the stairs to try to exit the building. Was that correct? Yeah, he, w- he told me he was going to the stairwell, uh, we had friends that were in the North Tower during the 93 bombing, and they all the lights had gone out in, in that instance, and our friends made it down through the smoke-filled stairwells. So never thinking that another terrorist attack would happen or anything like this, but he had just always said, I'll go to the stairs, and you know, I'll go to the roof and wait for a rooftop rescue because he was on the 104th floor, and there were only 107 Mm. floors, maybe 110. Uh, Windows on the World was a restaurant at the very top of the building that took up a couple of the floors. But Cantor Fitzgerald, the company he worked for, had a couple of the floors right there, 104, 105, 106, maybe 107. I'm not sure. But, yeah, Mm. that's what he was trying to do. He was trying to go to the stairs and get back home to us. But as I later learned, um, all of the stairwells were gone. There wasn't a stairwell left for him. They had collapsed already at that point, I would think. Yeah, the point of impact destroyed them. Sure. So the, the hundred that high up is where the impact, I believe, was initially felt. Uh, so people below that were able, my understanding, was able to get out before uh, the buildings ultimately collapsed. They had a window of time to get out of there. Uh, yes, I believe the point of impact was the 92nd floor in the North Tower is where the first plane hit. So, right, every person above that, to my knowledge, didn't get out. Um, Although uh, there may have been one or two survivors, but they weren't at Cantor. No one from Cantor Fitzgerald got out because, like I said, the stairwells were gone. So there was no chance of getting out. And I know that the stairs were locked trying to get to the roof, so they were trapped. They couldn't get to the roof and they couldn't get down. Um, so there were other phone calls that were made that were coworkers, and you know every single person were crying and screaming the same things. It was just an inferno, and it was horrible. Can't imagine that. And uh, Terry, now you said you had friends in other buildings there. What, were there any survivors uh, or friends that you and Tom had known that they get out? Uh, well, yes. Um, Family friends were over in the South Tower on the lower floors, and they got out, thankfully. Um, but every single person that was at Cantor Fitzgerald that day, no one made it out of the building um, alive. So I lost or 
you know, 20 to 30 friends. His entire desk was gone. Every single person he'd worked with, his boss, um, brothers, you know, I think there were six sets of brothers that worked at Cantor Fitzgerald. Um, you know, people that we had been to their weddings, we had been to their children's, you know, communions and, and things like that. I mean, we were a family. We were an extended family. They worked very close together on a trading floor, elbow to elbow, um, and you get to know each other very well. And um, young people, you know, his one of his coworkers, Danielle, she was 29 years old. Her parents were planning her 30th birthday party in October. Um, it was wow. just a tragedy beyond beyond what we can comprehend. Terry, tell me and tell our listeners um, something motivated you, begin to drive you. Um, I can't even begin to imagine uh, that phone call, that moment, at that looking at that television, knowing that uh, the the husband you loved was in that building. I cannot even go there and try to. So I don't claim to understand, but I try to uh, that I might give my sincere uh, sorry to you that this thing has happened. Uh, I said early on this program, when does grief stop? I don't know if or when it does. When you love somebody and something of this magnitude happens, um, our prayers and thoughts will continue to be with you uh, indefinitely. Uh, And you were motivated to do something. I, I was reading here, uh, special interest advocate and national chair for 9-11 families and survivors, United Justice Against Terrorism, the families in this role. Uh, you serve as a liaison between the 9-11 families and survivors in the United States Congress. Tell us a little bit about that and what is, and I don't have to ask you what's driving you, because this is personal. Uh, tell us a little bit about that and your efforts there. Okay, right. So post 9-11, like a lot of widows that I knew, we were very, very angry, angry with what had happened and angry that, um, that it did happen. And we, and we wanted answers, you know, why, who, how, and we asked questions and we hired lawyers and there were investigations going on and 9-11 widows had to fight very hard and 9-11 family members to get the 9-11 commission, to get our own government to even investigate our intelligence agencies and, and where the failures were. The Bush administration was not going to do anything until the families um, stood up and fought for that. And the administration did not cooperate. Um, and that drove us to want to know the truth even more. And I would say the driving force, yes, has been my husband and and all of the people that we lost and and, and all of the people that were killed, but mostly it's my children because they're growing up in a post-9-11 world, and I'm terrified of their future and the future of America um, if we don't find out the entire truth regarding 9-11 so we can protect ourselves going forward. Um, so in within the investigation early on, all signs and roads began to lead to one final destination, and it is the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And the role that they played in financing the attacks 
in financing al-Qaeda, in financing Osama bin Laden, and in having agents here in the United States prior to 9-11, call them handlers, um, were put here before the hijackers and met them when they got here. So out in California, there was Bayoumi and Thumari and another fellow called Basan. And, but mostly we focus on Thumari and Bayoumi and the evidence that we've collected on these two gentlemen. And they were agents of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, um, and they met these two, two of the hijackers, two of the 19 out in San Diego, and helped them with their housing, helped them get their driver's licenses, helped them with their flying lessons. Um, these hijackers bought first-class airplane tickets and, and all of that to practice and then you know, ultimately carry out their attacks. So the families wanted accountability. We want justice for these murders, and, and we want to protect ourselves going forward. So we filed lawsuit against the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. The Kingdom's response was they're innocent, they had nothing to do with it, and they began to fight us in the courts and were granted uh, dismissal on foreign sovereign immunity, that they were entitled to immunity because they're a foreign nation. And, and that's not reality. Um, we knew that, but we knew that the courts were misinterpreting existing law, and they were dismissing them because they were saying that the entire tort had to happen within our borders, meaning that it had to be financed and carried out within our borders. Um, so if a foreign nation or a foreign national, a foreign agent gives money to a terrorist organization, you know, within our borders, um, I can hold that nation accountable in a court of law. But if the same nation is involved, let's say, in France, g giving the money outside the borders, they said you can't hold that nation accountable. That was the loophole we had to close. And so the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act was written and introduced, and it took seven long years to get this bill passed in Congress. I became involved about the fourth year when I went to Congressman Peter King. The bill needed a sponsor in the House. It had had one, but that uh, congressperson did not return to Congress, so we lost our sponsor in the House. It had very strong support in the Senate. I went to Peter King, pled our case, showed him what we had, and he agreed. He understood completely the law and that the victims' rights were being denied. We were being denied our day in court. Um, and he agreed to sponsor JASTA, which I thought, okay, my, my work is done. I can go home now. And I learned very soon that that's not the case. I had to roll up my sleeves and work to get the bill passed, um, which, which meant going down to Washington, D.C., and... Uh, building a network of sponsors to support the bill, um, and it was, it, it was. I can tell you, I'll, 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 I'll speed it up a little bit. So the bill came out of committee in the Senate unanimously. Uh, Chuck Schumer at that point was the lead sponsor. John Cornyn, the majority whip, was the minority uh, sponsor. It came out of the Senate unanimously, very late in December. And we didn't have time to get it over to the House. 
and get it passed before that Congress ended. When wow. a Congress ends, every uh huh. No, go ahead. I know I'm, I'm agreeing okay. with you. Yeah. Okay. Right. So when a Congress ends every two years, any bill that isn't enacted into law dies on the vine, and you have to start the process all over again. So we did it again. We got the Senate to move on it. That passed out of the Senate unanimously, and then um, that took us months and months to f- get it back over to the House. And at that point, it took a lot of work. I mean, with Paul Ryan's office, we had Senator McConnell's office, you know, working with us, and a tremendous job there. And we finally got the House to agree to take it up for a vote. They passed it unanimously out of the House. We didn't know what President Obama would do, and we hoped and we prayed that he would not veto the bill, even though he had threatened to. Now, he had the administration had done a lot of things against the families along the way. They had started – the State Department had started a whisper campaign to kill the bill. Um, we had the State Department against us. We had the Obama administration mostly against us, the Chamber of Commerce against us. And yet Congress dug in deeper and more sponsors came on and, and more people began to support the bill. And – when President Obama did veto it on almost the 10th day, um, we had to work magic with Congress to not adjourn. This was back when they were going to adjourn for the uh, presidential elections, and, and they'd be gone for months, and we would lose our momentum. And Senator McConnell came out and said, the Senate's staying. We're going to vote on JASTA. And we ran over to... Paul Ryan's office and said, please, you know, what are you going to do? And he said, we're going to stay also. And it was mandatory attendance. Um, we, the families were up in the chamber watching. Each and every Senate had to come, Senator came in to give his or her vote. At the end of the Senate vote, it was 97 to 1 to override his veto. I was oh. asked to sit in, yeah, incredible, incredible. I was asked to sit in the Senate dining room with Senator McConnell's policy people and a few other people. I'd, I had senators to my right, to my left, all around me. I couldn't believe what we had just accomplished. When lunch was over, we went over and sat in the chamber to see the House's response. And, you know, here you have 343 members, maybe, I think, that have mm-hmm. to come in and vote. So it's a longer process. Um, but... No, I'm sorry, 435, that's the number. So, And that vote came in, and when it tallied, it was 348 to 77. We were cheering. They were cheering. Tears were flowing. They, they turned around. They wave, were waving to us up in the chamber. We stood up and gave them a round of an, a standing ovation, and we did it. We, wow. And it was the one and only um, veto override of President Obama's eight-year tenure. Um, the one and only. And now with JASTA, uh, we've gone back to the courts, and now the Saudis were not dismissed. They've been held in their lawsuit, and the court and the judge have ordered court-ordered subpoenas. And we are now fighting the Saudis once again. Um, they're not cooperating. They don't release the information, the, the, the subpoenas that we order on them. Um, they claim it's too burdensome. We have served our subpoenas on the FBI, the CIA, State Department, and Treasury. 
the FBI told us or responded with, it's it's too big. Uh, what you're asking for, we, we could never, you know, go through our files and find that. So we responded with, well, then give us all your fi- files and we'll find it. Um, so it's been a horrible, terrible battle and and a painful one to continuously well, have to fight. You know, I, I'm... I'm uh, very impressed uh, by your uh, uh, effort and to feel like, look, we're not going away. We're going to fight. And right. that, is such, that is to be respected. I, that, I'm telling you, I, that just gives me a good feeling. And it uh, sounds like somebody people need to, need to join forces with, with you uh, if there's an issue uh, to, to go through that process. Uh, we've had the opportunity to uh, to, to, to have uh, quite a few visits there on, uh, to our nation's capital or Capitol Hill. And uh, you're talking about work, uh, getting in, talking, positioning. This is what we want. And, and for you to say, you look, this just isn't it. I'm going to have to roll my sleeves up and get involved. Uh, and for that type of an accomplishment, uh, you should be saluted tonight for that. And I'm sure uh, your husband would be very proud uh, of the, uh, of the efforts that you are making and what you're doing is, is phenomenal. Uh, I think it's uh, your thoughts. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, here, here it is, you know, in, in spite of tragedy, you know, um, again, they just, they, they, they picked up out of the ashes. They, like you said, they dusted themselves off. They rolled their sleeves up uh, and, and they fought and they fought and they fought and they fought and they finally, they finally won. And now they're going back after the people that have been trying to, basically pull the wool over their eyes or throw some little smoke screen and they're just, they're not letting go. That's, that's utter tenacity right there. That is one of like the, the characteristics you'll see any, any military first responder type person. You're, if you're a tenacious person, whether you're, whether you're, you wear a uniform or not, we will respect that. We love it. You know, as, as a veteran, I will tell you, if I see tenacity in a person, that's one thing that's like, yes, that is somebody that I can stand shoulder to shoulder with when, when times get tough right there. And Terry, go ahead, Terry. Uh, just thank you so much for that, for all for all of that praise. I mean, the nine eleven families are a force to be reckoned with, and 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 when they unite and they and they stand, and they go to Washington D.C. and they demand, you know, in 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 the proper way with the respect to be to be heard, and to be, you know, to not be denied the most basic right of being able to present evidence that you've collected into a courtroom um that's what they were trying to deny and the saudis they fought us so nastily they they hired foreign agents so the the foreign um agent registration act the FARA that we're hearing uh, so much about on tv now with you know who was connected with russians and, and who had a FARA for this and a FARA for that uh, the, the the saudis have been breaking the FARA regulations and laws for years and they hired a hundred throughout the country after JASTA was passed to go out and hire and bring in military to Washington D.C. to fight for an amendment to JASTA. And it was all based on lies. And they and they told told the military that they were at risk for being sued for serving our country, which because of JASTA, which was absolutely not even possible because JASTA is, is a, a, makes an amendment to the. 
Foreign Sovereignty Act, and that's a foreign nation, and that's all we can do is hold a nation accountable because of JASTA, not an individual. And any act of war was specifically excluded. So they did this entire um, fraudulent act of bringing in 50 to 60 members of the military on several trips, and they put them up in all-expense-paid hotels, trips, and lavish dinners, and bars open till midnight, and took them up to the hill and paraded them around. They even falsely used um, a Purple Heart insignia and took Purple Heart um, recipients on the hill and committed fraud on our U.S. Congress, all paid for by the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia. Who wants to claim they're innocent? However, they spend millions of dollars trying to strong-arm our legislative process. They threatened economic warfare if we went forward. They insinuated uh, we would see a rise in terrorist attacks if JASTA passed. Um, they had us in tears. You know, they had us in tears. It was bad enough we had, you know, blisters and bloody feet by walking the halls of Congress and separating, you know, from our families, from our children, you know, making these commitments, um, and then to to commit fraud and lie and, and, and use our milita- U.S. military that way was, you know, they're, they're, they're beyond, you know, disgusting people, um, you know, and, 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 and it's about radical Islam, you know, it just is, it's, it's about the spread of it, it's about empowering it, it's about uh, destabilizing our country, and it's about them, you know, ultimately pushing Sharia law in this country, and, you know, 9-11 wasn't the first, you know, we were, the USS Cole was attacked, our embassies were attacked in Africa, you know, we were attacked in 93, and they haven't stopped since yeah. September 11th. And I me- truly believe we have to do this, and we have to stop, we have to expose it, and we have to stop the funding, and that's what we're yeah. trying to do. Well, Terry, I'll tell you what, and I'm going to be, again, respectful to your time. We already know that's the East Coast uh, time there, and, uh, and I'm going to be respectful for what uh, you were told in regards to time. Uh, let me ask you, uh, what I'm going to do is, uh, you made a statement uh, that you are concerned about the future for your kids. Uh, people are fearful. Will this happen again? What, what can we do to stop it? And I think your efforts to hold people accountable uh, for what they have done, but you seem, if you're that concerned, and I believe you to be, how do we not only hold those accountable today, but avoid another 9-11 tomorrow? Um, I said at the top of this show that there were some IT professionals who created some software uh, known as the IRP-5. I would like to send you that information of what they were working on uh, and complete it that, could have, that will help in the future uh, the lives of your children, their children. Uh, I want you to look at it because I think your passion for what you're doing, uh, if you wouldn't mind looking at that, I think it would bring a lot, a lot of things into perspective uh, of just this crazy way of thinking that this country has at times because you got all of these departments of law enforcement that want to get credit for any type of new advancement versus we're talking about body bags being filled in this country. Egos need to be left at the door. What do we have that can protect this country what do we have you, you, you will be surprised at the work of these six these five men and what they accomplished through uh trying to stop 
uh, another 9-11. I'd be more than happy to send some of that information. I'd like to talk to you about it probably offline. I think you could bring a clear perspective to us. Would you mind getting that from us? Yeah, thank you. No, of course, I would lo- I would like to see what you have. I'm, I'm interested in, in looking at it. Um, I, I think, you know, we've done a lot of good since 9-11 to prevent another attack, but the families believe strongly that if we can stop the funding and stop the Saudi, you know, the, 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 this money that just flows from the Middle East, from their vast, you know, oil coffers, um, we will eventually, you know, deter any future terrorist attack. I mean, we may never be able to stop the crazy that wants to put the bomb on his body and blow him up, but we can stop the money that fuels the ideology and that fuels the hatred. And that is coming from Saudi Arabia, and that is what we intend to do. Well, I intend to uh, definitely look into that. Uh, a lot of information and a lot of things that you've accomplished. Uh, again, uh, my, my, my love, our thoughts, our heart goes out to you, your family, and all the families of, of 9-11 who lost those that, that they loved. Um, we would like to uh, join in that effort. Well, there's an effort of change that can bring about change and productive change and positive change to our future generations. Uh, I think we should do that. So I, I can't tell you how... Uh, appreciative I am of you uh, for coming on the show tonight, sharing your thoughts. Uh, was there anything else you wanted to share uh, that I'd like to give you the floor? If there's anything else you would like our listeners to know, uh, I, how they can... I, anybody that's out there that that you know any FBI, CIA intelligence officer that is maybe retired now that has information that they have wanted to share or sitting on or, or could help with us and shed a light on what they know, we we would love to hear from them. We've had a couple come forward, and the details that they've given us were shocking, um, and we know that there's more out there. So anybody that, um, you know, has, has information that is a true, you know, FBI or CIA agent, uh, former agent, um, we would love to hear from you. Okay, and how can they get a hold of you, Terry? Just look online, just uh, Terry Strada. You'll find me. Uh, there's a passjast.org uh, is our website, so my okay. contact information is on there. Um, but anybody that really might know something, they'll know exactly how to reach me. Okay, we appreciate you so much uh, for your courage, uh, your strength, all of those things. And I, I run out of adjectives to give you because well, I don't think we have enough to, to salute what you do. I really, I really mean that. Thank you so much, and thank you for giving me this opportunity. I appreciate it. You know this, Terry, going forward, as this thing goes wherever it goes, if you need a platform, uh, you're welcome here at any time. Just give us, give us a call, uh, and we'll make that happen for you, okay? Yes, great. Thank you so much. Right, thank you. Have a good evening. Okay, thank you. Okay, there you have it. A magnificent uh, young lady, Sampson. Uh, that's courage at its highest level, yeah. and and not only talking the talk, getting it done. I mean, when you have the Congress turning around and applauding you because they have, through nonpartisan issues, come together to say we need to do something, and she got involved and said, "I'm going." To honor my husband, the other people that died, 
30, uh, she said 30 something people, uh, friends and, and, and close knit family members that they cared about died that day. Her fire's not going out. Oh, no, no, not anytime soon. I mean, and like she pointed out, I mean, she did make it a point to say that that was the only veto during uh, Obama's tenure that was ever, you know, uh, ever overturned. But I mean, how unanimous was that? 97 to 1. You just you just don't see people agreeing on those ki- on those kinds of issues, but like she said, I mean they they walked to their feet, were bleeding and sore, but they made sure that it happened. They did whatever it took. They put their pride, they put their ego, they put everything on the line yep. to to remember their fallen loved ones. And I am I my hats off to them. Yeah, and and we salute and we we're very familiar with the uh, ten thousand step morning. Uh, on Capitol Hill with the walking. Uh, these are not short hallways, folks. If you have not been up there, uh, we, we've experienced it. So, uh, wow, do we salute her and what she's doing. And uh, we're going to definitely uh, be in touch. As, she, as we talked about the IRP5, uh, we're going to send that information out to Terry uh, this evening. And uh, we're just trying to avoid another attack. Why not take a look? And I'll tell you what, this software that was created by the IRP5, uh, I'll tell you what, nothing like it on the planet. And it can do some things that needs to be done. Um, the other side of the break, folks, we're coming right back. Uh, another special guest is going to be joining us here uh, momentarily. And uh, to the families, to the heroes, we'll never forget. We remember 9-11 tonight on AJC Radio. We'll be right back. Do you know anyone who's been sent to prison who's innocent? The United States is experiencing record numbers of exonerations in cases where people were wrongfully convicted of crimes they did not commit. If you believe that no one should be sent to prison for crimes they didn't commit, there is something that you can do today. By remembering a just cause with a monthly, annual, or one-time donation, you can help in the fight against wrongful convictions. Call a just cause at 855-529-4252 or visit a-justcause.com and click the donate button. A just cause is a 501c3. Wrongful convictions are wrong. Let's be the voice of those who can't speak from behind the wall. I wanted to be in the military since I was since I was a kid. I served in the United States Air Force. I served a total of 16 years. I was deployed uh, 13 times. On my second deployment, four bombs hit my vehicle. And at 19 years old, that's the first time I ever saw somebody die. Coming back, I was raging. I started having pretty horrible nightmares. I would wake up in the middle of the night, sweats. I started drinking a lot. I felt worthless. I guess I never recognized it in myself. Eventually, one day, I just walked into the VA hospital and said I'd like to see somebody. Don't suffer alone. you got to find that link with somebody that'll make you let it go. It all starts with going to the VA. There's a whole community of veterans that just want to help you out. It's for the guys who couldn't come back, so you owe it to them to live well, because they're not here with their families.
How often does our justice system get it wrong, convicting innocent people of crimes they did not commit? A new project by the University of Michigan Law School and the Center for Wrongful Convictions at Northwestern University School of Law tries to answer that question. In the last 23 years, more than 2,000 people have been convicted of serious crimes and later exonerated, according to the National Registry of Exonerations. By far, the largest segment was almost 1,200 defendants falsely convicted because of large-scale patterns of police corruption, generally in drug and gun cases. Of the remaining 873 defendants exonerated, nearly half were wrongly convicted of murder, and of that group, 101 were sentenced to death. On average, it took more than 11 years for a conviction to be set aside. Why does the justice system get it wrong? In homicides, the biggest problem is perjury and false accusation, most often by supposed eyewitnesses. False convictions in adult rape cases are primarily based on mistakes by eyewitnesses, while false convictions in child sex abuse cases are often for fabricated crimes that never occurred. 2,000 exonerations may seem small in a nation with more than 2.3 million people behind bars, but there are far more false convictions than the report contains. Most false convictions are never formally challenged, and those convictions that are successfully overturned receive little or no attention from the media, according to the report's authors. You're on your way to meet up with friends but you can't seem to get anywhere quickly. You don't want your friends to be annoyed, so you text. You're on your way. Five seconds is the average time your eyes are off the road while texting while driving. Make sure you get where you're going. Messages about women and violence. I need a little clarification. Uncle Bill, how am I supposed to grow up to respect women when I have such lousy role models? Boys are never going to approach you. Can you help me reshape my attitude towards women? You need to teach them that violence against women is wrong. Congress shall make no law respecting an establishment. Uh, religion. Or prohibiting the free exercise. Thereof. Or abridging the freedom of speech. Or of the press. Or the right. Of the people. Peaceably. To assemble. And to petition. The government. For a redress of grievances. Broken down living life. Ladies and gentlemen of America, this is AJC Radio tonight. Remembering 9-11, one of the, mo- one of the worst tragedies of terror that has hit this nation. Tonight we look back, we follow the words we shall never forget. It is important that we reflect, that we look back, that we look at the heroes, the victims and the perpetrators who were guilty of this act. 
and America stands united to bring those to justice who were held accountable. President Barack Obama capture, killing of Osama bin Laden uh, was a step in that direction. We continue to seek justice. Terry Strada joining us tonight, a widow of 9-11, shared her heart-wrenching story moments ago. The tragedy, but the perseverance of this woman and the families of the victims have come together in a force to be reckoned with as they have walked the hills of Congress, the halls of Congress, rather, to implement change, and change was done. That battle and those efforts continue, not only through her organization, through a just cause, uh, and many other advocate organizations that are out here trying to implement change. As we talked about the RP5, men committed, dedicated to creating and building software to keep the homeland safe. Uh, we're going to send that information to Terry Strada. Uh, and anyone, anyone else that can understand we must come together as a nation, as a people, as a race, a human race, I mean, to make a difference. Right now, we're very pleased to be joined uh, on this program by Paul Cialino. He's a friend of ours, uh, a gentleman that has impacted our lives along the way through the fight for justice for the RP5. He joins us tonight as he reflects back as well on 9-11. Paul, are you with us? Lamont, how you doing? Good evening, everybody. Doing good. How are you? I'm fine. Thank you, Paul, for taking some time out of your schedule today. Talked to you briefly earlier today and, and always willing to, to help where you can. We appreciate you so very much for taking time out of your day yeah. this evening uh, to help us yeah, respect. It's my, it's my pleasure, Lamont. You guys are doing God's work there. I'm very, always happy to join in when I can. Yeah, we appreciate that. Paul, as, as we, we were talking about 9-11, I know you'll share something briefly. I'm going to give you an opportunity. Tell the folks what you were doing. What, how did, did 9-11 uh, impact you? Well, you know, I'm an old soldier. I was a soldier for seven years. I wore a uniform for this country, and I loved every second of it. And I got to tell you, any soldier uh, on 9-11 – only wanted to do one thing, and that was answer the bell, man, and get back in the fight. Um, so, you know, at my somewhat advanced age, that wasn't going to happen. And uh, I got to tell you, it depressed the hell out of me. I remember sitting in a hotel room in Cincinnati about two weeks after 9-11, and I'm sitting there watching this, this horror show on TV and these victims and everybody who died there, and I'm just – you know, I tell you, I think I, I had a case of PTSD for a while. I was just messed up for months. And I I remember it like it was yesterday, like most of us do. I mean, I, I had I worked at CBS News at the time. I had dozens of friends in New York City uh, who were within blocks of that. Uh, I had one friend who was killed, and I'll talk about him in a minute. Um, it, it was the most tragic thing that happened in my lifetime. I'm 62 years old, and the only thing I can compare it to is when uh, John F. Kennedy got assassinated, Martin Luther King and Bobby Kennedy. I mean, those were tragic things, but nothing like this. I mean, uh, A, you know, those are people, uh, all three of those gentlemen knew they were targets, and they did what they did knowing Martin Luther King predicted his death uh, days before it happened. I mean, he, he knew he was going to see uh, 50 years old. He was positive about it, and he was right. Um, but yeah. th you, you, 
2,500, 2,800 civilians, whatever the number was, the airplanes that went down that day, it was just, uh, it was a, a, a tragedy that I doubt we'll ever see again in this country. We may, but um, short of a nuclear bomb being exploded within our borders by terrorists, uh, I don't think it could get much worse. And so, I, I, like everybody else, I mean, we were sick. I mean, I, and we were sick for years over it. And, uh, of course, it has bogged us down in a $5 trillion war. Uh, we're still fighting today. I read today that uh, there's been 6,500 acts of terrorism committed against us uh, in the United States since that time. So I don't know what we did, but it seems to be worse than it ever was. But we're dealing with people who are evil. I mean, there, there's no uh, – th- th- this is uh, evil versus good. And we're in this fight every day in this country, and it's something we should all remember. No, absolutely right. Um, and that – and I think people need to understand, uh, and, and you said perfectly that uh, it's just you know when you're a target, you expect uh, any day somebody can do something, but you continue the fight because you're a soldier or a champion uh, in the cause right. which you which you fight for. But as you said, innocent civilians uh, going to their jobs, providing for their families uh, out of nowhere. Your life, as, as we talked about. Go ahead, go ahead, Paul. I, I, are we ever going to forget the, the women jumping out of the 90th, 95th floor? And in their last act of modesty, they're trying to hold their skirts down, you know, while, while they're flying through the air. And the men, I mean, I, I'll never forget that those photographs and videos as, as long as I live. Uh, I just can't imagine the family members in it. You know, we, we've seen what they've gone through in the 200 and, or 323 firemen, New York city firemen that walked in that building. Almost every one of them had to know they weren't coming out. Uh, 26 paramedics, another 175, uh, uh, Port Authority policemen. I mean, it, it, it was horrendous, but yet there was heroic actions that day that saved tens of thousands of lives. And that's right. And I think that's what we have to choose to focus on is the activities of the people who saved all those lives that day. Um, There were rock stars, man, uh, of the human race who uh, forfeited their lives to save hundreds or thousands more. And that's huge. And that's what we, that, that's what Americans do when it's, when it comes right down to it, that's the America I grew up in and love. Um, those are the people uh, who can be counted on in a time of tragedy, and they, they sure stood up that day. And I, I want to talk about a guy by the name of John O'Neill. And John O'Neill was an FBI agent for uh, uh, well over 20 years. At the time, on September 11th, uh, he was getting ready to start a new job at the World Trade Center as the director of security. Now, he wasn't starting to the following week but he was trying to get his son a job, and John was a New Yorker. He was from New York, born and raised there. Uh, He worked all over the country. Uh, His last assignment with the FBI was in Washington, D.C., and wouldn't you know it, he was the bin Laden expert in the United States. He had been chasing and fooling around with bin Laden for in excess of 10 years at that point. He was the world authority on bin Laden, and... Mm -hmm. He had a falling out with the FBI. John was a Lone Ranger type of guy. He was not well-loved by upper management because John was the kind of guy, I'm getting the job done. 
and I'm going to get it done right. And I know you guys don't like my methods, but I'm doing it anyways. And he had a falling out where he, he basically got fired. He resigned. They were going to fire him over some silly stuff. He was giving a speech in D.C. He had his cell phone in his briefcase, and a busboy grabbed the briefcase. It was on a, a tray, a table tray. While he was giving the speech, he grabbed the tray, the briefcase, and John's classified phone. Of course, you have to report that immediately, which John did. They recovered the phone, the briefcase, within hours. And the FBI was making, uh, was acting like they were going to fire him. So John chose to resign. Uh, John being John and, and being a world-class investigator was immediately picked up by the people who own the World Trade Center to be their next director of security. Because John worked the bombing at the World Trade Center uh, years previously. He was the lead investigator on it on the New York office. Uh, J- John was an interesting guy because John knew to fight this, this evil, he had to bring into the tent, of the U.S. law enforcement tent, people from Pakistan, Saudi Arabia, Jordan, etc. All of our allies in, in the Middle East, and especially the police and intelligence people, John would bring to New York for training, for intelligence briefings. He would romance them with dinners and cocktails. John had an American Express card. He dropped $25,000 on a dinner some nights, which, which drove the FBI crazy. But what did it do? It got us all this goodwill with these foreign services and these intelligence agencies who started cooperating with us, who started working with us, who started telling us, hey, you guys are a target. Uh, this is what's going to happen. And this paid off immensely. Uh, mm-hmm. The FBI and the government being who they are, though, what do they do? Uh, you know, they want to fire them over a phone thing because John – at one time, told the director of the FBI after the, if you recall, there was a bombing on a United States Air Force Base in Saudi Arabia, and uh, uh, well over 100 people were killed, I think. And John O'Neill was the lead investigator on that, and he goes to Saudi Arabia with the director. And when he gets there, they're basically, the Saudis are lying to the director. And John O'Neill, on a, on a conversation on the director's private jet coming back to Washington, D.C., said, director, they were blowing smoke up your ass. They're lying to you. How did John notice? Well, John knew people high up in the security forces in Saudi Arabia, and they told him that they were lying about it. So he knew what he talked about. The director found it to be crass, and uh, kind of John fell out of favor. But I could tell you a story. Bill Clinton and Janet Reno and uh, the head of the uh, U.S. Attorney's Office in New York used to call FBI headquarters and ask John to come see him on the QT because John was the most knowledgeable guy about terrorism in the world. The hands down, no question about it, he was the expert because of his uh, iffy standing with the FBI. The president of the United States and the attorney general used to have to sneak visit with him. And O'Neill would tell him, listen, you guys are going to get me fired. I can't be having these secret meetings with you. I got bosses. And Clinton would say, John, don't worry about your bosses. I'll cover it. But that was the kind of guy O'Neill was. So on 9-11, 9-11, O'Neill, who has not officially started his job, is in the building because his son is coming in from New Jersey to apply for a job in the, uh, uh, in the computer department, in the IT department at the World Trade Center. So John got there that day early to meet his son. The good news is his son missed his train in New Jersey and never got there. The bad news is John was there when the first plane hit, and he knew what it was. There was no doubt in his mind. 
he he was responsible for evacuating the buildings and getting one, everyone out of there. Uh, when everyone was saying, stay, this is an accident, O'Neill was, oh, bullshit, it's not an accident, we're under attack, and we got to get these people out of this building. Uh, unfortunately, John went back into the second tower, and it collapsed on top of him and killed him. Now, I was here for uh, John. John was an agent in, in Chicago for a long time is where I met him. And uh, I was here at his memorial service, and his daughter, his adult daughter, back in nineteen uh, in two thousand one, uh, she's given the eulogy for John here, and she said that the first her first memory of her father was sitting at home watching videotapes of Osama bin Laden. She said she could pronounce Osama bin Laden before she could say, uh, you know, regular words that school kids know, because she grew yeah. up sitting on her father's lap watching Osama bin Laden tapes her father was studying. Oh, and that's the kind of guy that got killed on 9-11, guys. That, that's the kind of hero, heroism that, that happened that day. And O'Neill, who was not yet on the payroll, probably saved, uh, you know, thousands of lives that day by being there. That's awesome. And, and, and those people should be saluted uh, for their efforts, for their work. And those people, again, <clears throat> we, would, we would say gone too soon. And with the impact John was having um, and no, his knowledge of, of terrorism, these are people you just don't want to lose. Uh, and, no, and, and there have been a number of books written about this since then. This is all public information. And, and, and O'Neill was just one of those great Irish cops, man, who, who was at the top of his game for a long, long time. And he didn't mess with the, the minutia of, of politics and the rest of it. He was chasing killers who wanted to kill as many of us as often as they could. That was his job, as he saw it, was protecting the people of the United States. And he was very effective at it, and it pissed off a lot of people in government because, you know what, John outworked everybody, he outsmarted everyone. He was was a team player, but there were a lot of people who did not like him. Sure. And, And this caused him a lot of grief personally, and you know what? Uh, John fought the fight for as long as he could. And sure. it's unfortunate, but that's what the government does sometimes, right? Uh, the people yep. who should be running things and in charge are terrorized and run off, and the bureaucrats take over, and they, you know, all they care about is their career and uh, their next job. O'Neill cared about the safety of the people of this country passionately. And that's what it sounds like uh, a true hero of 9-11, which we honor tonight on this program. I'm going to play a clip, uh, Paul, real quick. I'm going to get your thoughts on it, give you an opportunity uh, to enjoy the rest of your evening. I think what you uh, share there, uh, many tragedies here. Uh, people that, you know, just with that uh, spirit to, look, I'm not worried about myself, but I need to save as many as I can and take the risk uh, that these men, including John, took to save lives. We talk about heroes all the time, people that stood and went beyond the call uh, in a moment. This is a moment people were able to collectively come together in this country and fight to save the lives as many as they could. I'm going to play this clip, Paul, to come back and get your thoughts. Families of the fallen. In those awful moments, 
after the South Tower was hit. Some of the injured huddled in the wreckage of the 78th floor. The fires were spreading. The air was filled with smoke. It was dark. They could barely see. It seemed as if there was no way out. And then there came a voice, clear, calm, saying he had found the stairs. A young man in his 20s, strong, emerged from the smoke and over his nose and his mouth, he wore a red handkerchief. He called for fire extinguishers to fight back the flames. He tended to the wounded. He led those survivors down the stairs to safety and carried a woman on his shoulders down 17 flights. Then he went back, back up all those flights, then back down again, bringing more wounded to safety. Until that moment when the tower fell. They didn't know his name. They didn't know where he came from. But they knew their lives had been saved by the man in the red bandana. Again, Mayor Bloomberg, distinguished guests, Mayor de Blasio, Governors Christie and Cuomo, families and survivors of that day. To all those who responded with such courage, on behalf of Michelle and myself and the American people, uh, it is honor for us to join in your memories. To recall and to reflect, but above all, to reaffirm the true spirit of 9-11. Love, compassion, sacrifice, and to enshrine it forever in the heart of our nation. There you have it, the man with the red bandana, President Barack Obama, speaks to that hero of that day, of that moment, running in and out of a building that ultimately took his life, but not before he saved countless others. Paul, your thoughts on that? Well, you know, uh, if there's anybody more eloquent than uh, President Obama. I don't know who it is. I, I just watched his speech at McCain's funeral. And uh, in a funeral filled with great speakers, uh, Obama was heads above anyone else. So he could, he, he could, pardon me, he could, uh, he can touch your heart, man, with, with a few short words and phrases. And, and, and I think he was right on the money there. Um, the heroes, you know, he, he just explains it in a way that anybody can understand it and they get it. Um, yeah. And, I, you know, it's been 17 years, guys. I, I got to tell you, it, it's flown by, 
right? And yeah. but today it seemed like yesterday, and I'm, yeah. I, I had to turn off the TV tonight because I I just can't stand watching it. It just it makes me insane to watch this stuff. And how many thousands have we lost since then? Injured, screwed up for life. Uh, it's a never-ending war that that has no end in sight. And uh, you are fighting with people who like to live in the 13th century still, who believe we're evil because we're Christians and uh, not Muslims. And and that's what you're fighting. You're fighting a, 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 a just lunatics. Yeah. And Obama uh, figured out how tough it was. Bush, Obama. Uh, um, every president is, is said, man, you know, I, there's no end in sight to this stuff. Uh, and it, it, there is no end in sight. We, we just got to keep doing what we do in this country and we got to get better. We got to be better people and uh, we have to be better citizens and, and, and we have to treat each other better. And remember, uh, there's a whole world out there that wants to see us destroyed and our way of life destroyed. That's true. That's very true, uh, Paul. Uh, let me first thank you uh, for taking some time out of this evening, uh, out of your evening, to join us tonight. I know it's late there, getting late there on the East Coast. You've probably been busy all day. Thank you again. Your voice and perception, uh, perspective rather, is critically important to us. We appreciate all that you uh, brought to the table to explain these things and your experience of reflecting uh, back on 9-11. We appreciate you so very much. Uh, well, thanks, gentlemen, for having me. It was my uh, pleasure and honor to contribute whatever I could. And uh, God bless our country and our people. Take care, guys. Take care, Paul. And there you have it, Paul Cialino, speaking to his personal firsthand uh, experience of loss there. Uh, former FBI agent, he, he mentioned John there, that did some things, uh, but was a hero. Absolutely. Yeah, I was just uh, reading over this quote from Lamar Alexander. Uh, it said, September 11th is one of our worst days, but it brought out the best in us. It unified us as a country and showed our charitable instincts and reminded us of what we stood for and stand for. I mean, there are numerous records of people, you know, going in and out of the building, the, the first responders, be it, you know, firemen, police, EMT, whomever. But there are probably even more just faceless, nameless people that sacrificed themselves for the for the, the person was to their left and right to make sure, okay, I'm going to do my best to make sure you get out. And that is what the American spirit is completely all about. I mean, we've, we've heard it uh, displayed through our two guests tonight, just, you know, um, with Miss, uh, Miss Strada, how this, the countless hours spent up on, on Capitol Hill um, fighting and fighting and fighting until they could get justice served. And then with Mr. Cialino here, I mean, he, he's talking about a 35-year career, just day after day, working working himself for the American people. And I, I mean, I, I tip my hat to, again, to all these people, all the ones that sacrificed themselves on that day and since then to ensure that, you know, that the the American way of life doesn't die out, you know, that the, the the home fires are still kindled, they're still burning bright, and that we see these this issue resolved, and we never forget those that paid the ultimate price. Absolutely right. We'll go to the clip now. Voices from inside the towers on 9-11. Let's play it. Yeah, hi. 
for me is when he asks him, please hurry and thank you. To be able to have that uh, presence uh, of mind uh, under pressure like that I thought was just remarkable. I was really proud of him. I mean, to be able to keep that cool and request please hurry. I think that was his last word. The sonic record of that day, the audible record of that day, is essential because the visual record of that day is limited to the exteriors. Uh, five, one, several, four, one, four, five, four, five, he says he's at the 105th floor at One World Trade Center. They're part of the fabric of the day that we wouldn't know or have any understanding of without this sonic record. Brian Nunez was an office manager at Cantor Fitzgerald on the 104th floor of the North Tower. He was just six floors above the plane's impact. I woke up to my telephone ring. I worked nights at the time, so I didn't want to be bothered. And then my cell phone rang again. And I'm like, I'm not going to answer it. First saved message. Brian left that message and that must have been the first or second phone call that I received that morning. And I mean, I just didn't realize it. Now, it's, it's really hard to struggle with, you know, what would have happened if I answered the phone? You know, but I mean, I couldn't do anything, even if I did answer it. I keep the message on an MP3 file, so I have it on CD. I have it hidden away in a safe. I have it, you know, on every hard drive I have. I have it, like, everywhere, just so that nothing happens to it. It's Brian's last word. One of the reasons why recordings were made was so people could record their last words. No, I mean, I think it gives me a little bit of guidance. I, like, draw from Brian's strength when I hear the message. Melissa Harrington Hughes was a business executive attending a meeting on the 101st floor of the North Tower. I just want to let you know I love you. I'm stuck in this building in New York. This 
Melissa was in New York for just one day. September 11th started like any other morning. Woke up, put a pot of coffee in. So I was making the bed and the telephone rang. Well, I don't usually answer the phone, but this morning I did. It was my daughter, Melissa. I knew she was in New York. She was only gonna be there that Tuesday. When the merger was done, she was flying back to California the next day. Melissa was a little hysterical. I told her, honey, you have to slow down so that your father can understand what the problem is. She got her composure, said to me, dad, I'm on 101st floor of the World Trade Center and a bomb just went off. In my bedroom was a TV set. I turned it on, happened to be on CNN. I saw the fire, I saw the smoke. I was heartbroken. She told me that fire wasn't her major concern, but there was an awful lot of smoke. So I said to her, honey, I said, can you see an exit sign? She said, yes, dad. And I said, well, under all the exit signs, honey, are stairwells. I said, you get to that stairwell as fast as you can and get out of the building. It was very unusual that people outside had almost a greater sense of alarm and urgency than the people inside who were in the dark. Families were seen billowing smoke and the flames licking up the side of the building. It was just a terrible responsibility for the people on the outside to have to say it's worse than you think. In the North Tower, Michelle Cartier, an executive assistant, had just started her day. I just felt like this day was just not going to end right. It was just not, a, not going to be a good day. And little did I know that it would be a day that changed the rest of my life. Went to work that morning, um, worked at World Trade Center 1 for Lehman Brothers. We were based on the 40th floor. Started going through my emails. It was a normal routine, preparing for the day. And the next thing I know, the building moves. And I could hear the computers sizzling. Then the whole floor just evacuates. Michelle's brother James was also working that day in the Twin Towers, but in the South Tower. In his job as an electrician, James Cartier moved between different floors. The only thing that I wanted to do was to find out where James was. Even though he was four years younger, he always had that older brother role in taking care of everybody. As part of a large, close family growing up in Queens, James used to go biking with his older brother, John. John was teaching James how to, how to ride the motorcycle. So they, they, have, they shared that passion and love for the motorcycle. John was working nearby when James called him from the South Tower. He called me to say that Tower One had been hit by a plane. He could see the smoke um, and that Michelle, my sister, was in Tower One and he didn't know what floor she was on. So, you know, we immediately went into, you know, um, family mode, you know, 
And uh, I, uh, I said to my brother James, had I known it were my last words, I would have probably chose better words. But, you know, I just told him I'll meet you on the street and, and I'll be there. As we were descending, um, people were helping one another, people, you know, just regular everyday workers just helping each other get down the stairs. And I remember saying to myself, well, as soon as I get to the last step and I get outside, I'll try him again. All of a sudden, in this crowd of thousands of people, I look up and I see my brother John. John was at the World Trade Center because he had received a phone call from his brother James who was on one of the higher floors of the South Tower. Their plan was to meet and find Michelle. Now, I wouldn't have been there at all had he not called me. But his thoughts weren't of himself. His thoughts were of my sister and that we, as her brothers, have a job to do now, to go get her and get her out of there. Fifteen minutes after the North Tower was hit, most people in the South Tower Tower 2 were still at their desks. Brad Fetchett, an equities trader, was one of them. Hey, Mom, it's Brad. Uh, just wanted to call and let you know. I'm sure that you heard that a plane crashed into World Trade Center 1 or 5 or in World Trade Center 2. I'm not uh, obviously alive and well over here, but uh, obviously a pretty scary experience. I saw a guy fall out of probably the 91st story all the way down. So, <clears throat> you're welcome to give a call here. I think uh, we'll be here all day, but uh, give me a call back later. Love you. He was trying to reassure us that he was okay, but you could tell as he cleared his voice when he talked about seeing someone fall from the 91st floor, that there was a lot of fear in his voice. It's available anytime I want to play it back. It's there. I hear it and I know it. I, I know it. And uh, I'm still very fragile to listen to it. And so I'm comforted to know it's there, but I don't, I don't listen to it. Charlie Carraher, a systems analyst for Morgan Stanley, worked on the 68th floor in the South Tower. I, I just backed up my chair and looked out and I, I could see like the window looking out over uh, New Jersey. And it actually looked like snow. There were so many pieces of paper, it actually looked like snow. There's a group of about 10 of us uh, standing, um, looking north towards uh, the Empire State Building. And there was like a lot of smoke, it was almost like clouds. And all of a sudden this, uh, this, um, this person pops out of it. And he just made it look so easy. He just, he seemed so calm. He just like looked to the left, to the right, and then two people jumped. And uh, as the lady passed by the window, she made eye contact. You could see through the windows, and that that really spooked me. I mean, you can um, you can communicate a lot by just you know with uh, with your eyes. And I had to get away from the window. They started you know making a choice. You know, burn to death at 2,000 degrees or jump. What a tragedy. Voices 
from inside the towers. Sharing those emotions, the fear, the devastation, horrible, horrible thing. We sit here tonight and try our best to say, how do we avoid these things from happening again? How do we come together as a country and say, life is precious? important Samson how do we get there I mean I'm right there with you sitting here just listening to the panic and everything that is going on with those individuals as you know fear just grabs a hold of them and, and, and they know that their last moments are I mean they're creeping up on them faster and faster so they just can't comprehend it and to those victims, I mean, truly, I mean, what kind of choice is that to be faced with? You know, you either stay where you're at and die from either smoke inhalation, um, fire, or you jump from almost a thousand feet in the air. Not too many options there. Uh-uh. The show's dedicated to David Banks, Dave Zapolo, Clinton Stewart, Kendrick Barnes, Demetrius Harper, the RP5, who I consider to be heroes. As a result of 9-11, the passion, the work that went into creating software to avoid and to help this nation avoid another 9-11. These men are known as the IRP-5 who were wrongfully convicted for really wanting to protect the place we call America. Um, It's unjust on every level. We need these men home as they continue to have a vision with their work to protect America. Um, It's critically important. Go to a-justcalls.com. You can read up on the IRP-5, the dedication, the work of these men. Free the IRP-6.org. Go out there. Take a look. And uh, Cliff, when you think about um, these these men, uh, and when you reflect on something like this, it's really saddening to the heart that a country that could use very clearly what these men worked on in sweat and tears sit in a prison cell tonight, wrongfully convicted. Well, when you look back on you know, the 9-11 Commission report, the reasons that they said that the attacks on uh, on our nation, on the towers, on, uh, you know, the people of America, the reason that attack was able to happen was because there was no collaboration of information. You have, you know, several, uh, several law enforcements at the um, at the national level, several several law enforcement agencies. I mean, you've got the CIA, the NSA, the FBI. Uh, you have DLJ and, and um, uh, you've got ICE and you've got TSA. And all of those fall under the, under the umbrella of Department of Homeland Security now. And when you look at what happened, the fact was that these agencies were not sharing information. They had information about the... Uh, about the terror attacks. 
um, several of the agencies had different pieces of information. But like you said earlier, uh, Mont, they they want to each take credit for uh, what they bring to law enforcement rather than saying, hey, let's come together and, and protect the country on a whole. And that was the way that these uh, terrorists were able to pull pull these things off. You had some in California, um, you know, like, like Terry Strada was saying, they were in San Diego learning how to fly planes. You had other ones who were in Florida. So the pieces of the puzzle were there. Uh, they just didn't come together. And so right. the software that IRP Solutions um, built was to help the law enforcement agency at the federal level come together and say, let's share information so that we don't have another attack night like 9-11. And there comes a time, uh, Cliff, that you put all that other garbage out of the way. This is about protecting our children, our children's children, and those that will come uh, after. In this closing clip, we played a part of this earlier. The young girl who lost her father in the towers uh, grew up and moved on, we explain the importance uh, of her voice. Let's hear it. Ladies and gentlemen, the young lady you are about to listen to lost her father on 9-11, 2001. Through the years, one thing remained constant. She continued to miss her father. Here's what she had to say. It's been a year, Daddy. I really, really miss you. Mommy says you're safe now in a beautiful place called heaven. Oh, I started high school. 
I may be on a roll. I hope you're proud of me. I'm also on the soccer team. Can you see me on the field? I started thinking about college. Do you think I could be a doctor? Now I dream of I know you'll be with me when I walk down the aisle. I try not to be sad. But it hurts. What are we going to do, America? As the hearts of our children continue to cry as we stand at risk of another attack of terror on our nation. What about our children? Our children's children who stand in the crossfire of terror. We must act now that America and our children will remain safe. I hope you know you're my hero. That's heart-wrenching, thought-provoking. What are we going to do? I speak to America, the leaders, the American people, as you wonder what the next step will be or the next act that will happen to strike terror across America. We must join in this fight to keep America safe. His faithful lightning up his wind Well, there you have it. America stands at the crossroads again tonight as they say that America is as much as risk for another attack as they were 17 years ago. That's something that folks don't want to hear, but it should call folks to action. We should do all that we can to avoid a little girl, little boy, a wife, a father, a husband, to lose someone so senselessly. We just should not be there. Samson, your closing thoughts on that. 
Mon, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, if there is anything out there, like you mentioned, uh, the software that was developed by the IRP5, um, that if there is something that can cause some type of collaboration between these agencies, I, I think that we've kind of driven home the point um, that we need to do what's best for the American people. We need to set ego and agency aside and do what's best. 9-11 does not need to be repeated ever. Absolutely. America, we shall never forget 9-11. Till next time, this is IJC Radio. Good night. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. 
Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Purchase new wiper blades from O'Reilly Auto Parts today and we'll install them for free. See better and drive safer with O'Reilly Auto Parts. Oh, 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 O'Reilly. Oh, 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 o